Episode number 13 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode will be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Liu, and I am the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is historian and friend and chicken owner, Kevin Bunch. Um, Kevin, among other things is the creator of the Atari Archive series of chronological looks at the library for the Atari VCS, or if uh, you prefer, the 2600, though you are wrong. Um, (laughs) Kevin, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. It's great to be here, and thank you for plugging my chickens. Yes, of course. Uh, They're very good chickens. I wish I lived locally to get your free eggs. Because uh, we go through a lot of eggs at the yeah. Cipaldi household. I don't, I don't think you actually want either of us to live near you because this, yeah, we'd be taking a lot of eggs. And I think you probably use those. I mean, they produce a lot more eggs than I can use. So, hey. Mm, all oh, right. We would, we, okay, we got to move. Guess I'm uh, moving out east. <laughs> so, Kevin, the Atari archive um, is attempting to play through every VCS game um chronologically um and i've always been fascinated by what i might call like a very slow digestion of history um a very macro level uh look into the history of games or anything i guess um is that kind of where this is coming from for you too did you think that you might discover something new if you sort of slowed down and went one by one yeah that's That's really a a good way of putting it. Uh, My thinking when I sort of jumped into this was, you know, each of these games came out at a specific point in time in a specific context. And, you know, just looking at them as a blur or as a list in an emulator folder, it's you kind of lose that context. uh, And, you know, why this game came out at this particular time, you know, how was it received, that sort of thing. Well, and especially for the, a system like the 2600, I mean, there's a very huge jump in uh, quality and kind of capability of the games from the early days of it to the later days of it. So, I mean, if you show someone a random Atari 2600 game and you say this is what Atari 2600 games look like, you know, there's there's a pretty good amount of uh, context you're going to be missing there because they can look much worse and they can look much better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the system had, what, a 14-year life on the market? And that's just the commercial life. And just so much came out over that period. And let me tell you, having gotten through all of the stuff from the 70s, some of it is kind of dire, to put it mildly. (laughs) I mean, I would imagine that would be, I think, what would prevent me most from a project like this is having to really try to play something that uh is kind of almost objectively without value today (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i don't know who would be banging down the door to play a starship for the atari right now like that was a 1977 release and like everything from star raiders on you know from 79 that was that just did the same thing it did so much better. But, you know, for 1977, it's a super cool game and there's nothing else really like it. So is that maybe an example of a game that you didn't appreciate before, but because you're forcing yourself to live history <laughs> that um, it, it it kind of, you know, you, you, you learned how to appreciate it? Yeah, I think that's a really good example because, um, again, you know, it's, it's like a first-person uh, spaceship game. You're flying around, you're shooting things, and you know it's that's about all there is to it. There's no like <laughs> jumping around a map or uh, doing any o- other objectives. Just oh, you have two and a half minutes, shoot a bunch of stuff or dodge a bunch of rocks, <laughs> and you know, thrilling, thrilling, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it's 1977. It's like, holy crap, this is a first person perspective uh, home video game. 
Right. On a system which uh, listeners um, might know is just is not something that should be able to do a first person perspective <laughs> game. That seems like voodoo, uh, knowing how the system works. Yeah, when I talked to uh, I talked to a number of uh, the early developers on these games, and uh, I believe Starship was the one that uh, Joe DeCure, one of the people who like helped design the system, remarked the first time he saw that he's like, "Wow, what the heck are they doing with this thing?" <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, it just seems like such a hard project for a lot of reasons. I mean, we're we're kind of half joking about having to play the games, but like, I would think one of the biggest challenges is that you as an historian, um, you really want to tell their stories, right? Like you you want to talk to these guys, frankly, while they're still alive. Um, and is, is there maybe sort of a sense of, uh, like the, that you have to be doing this correctly? Like, is there pressure on you that like no one else is going to actually slow down and look at these one by one? Uh, yeah, there's a bit of that, you know, I'm, am mindful of the fact that a lot of these people are getting older and a lot of them, you know, only want to talk about this stuff so many times, you know, there's a few of them that are happy to just, you know, throw down and chat about work that they did 40 years ago. But a lot of them, it's like, yeah, okay. And, but, you know, as soon as they're done, you know, I can't hear from them ever again. Yeah, I mean, some of these guys, they told their story or, you know, what they, what they thought of as their story once or twice at like a really old classic gaming expo, you know, like early two thousands or something. And then they were like, okay, done. I feel like I've heard you mention that in a couple videos where it's like, well, this guy talked back then and uh, <laughs> not so much now. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that brings me to another kind of a struggle with this is that some of these people are almost impossible to track down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the one you were referring to most recently, like it's in my most recent video, uh, which as of this recording is a maze craze one. Uh, and that was done by Rick Moore, who, also did Space Invaders, so you know he talked at the old classic gaming expos about Space Invaders because people would ask him about that being the big huge hit for the VCS. But barely anyone asked him about Maze Craze, and you know almost no one asked him about his time at Fairchild, which he did bef- Channel F games before he came to Atari. So you know I'd really like to talk to him about those things. <laughs> but he's been MIA for something like 12 years now. Oh God. And I mean, with that maze craze video, you know, and you do this with a lot of your videos, but you spend a lot of time. And I think this is almost necessary for something like this, but you uh, spend a ton of time kind of setting up the context for a game. Um, I mean, I wasn't timing it, but I felt like the first like one third to one half of that video was not about Maze Craze. It was about all of the other Maze games that came before and uh, in like Maze AI experiments and um, arcade games like Gotcha and that sort of thing. So when you're trying to do like a definitive video for a game like this, um, how do you decide what context is important and what to include? So for me, uh, obviously, I want to talk about anything that directly uh, could have influenced uh, the game in question. So, you know, if I'm talking about uh, Maze Craze, I got to talk about the Channel F game Maze, which, you know, Rick Moore did mention at CGE. He just ripped off wholesale because he really liked <laughs> it. Uh, but then I also have to consider, OK, well, where did Maze come from? Well, right before Maze was Amazing Maze, the arcade game which is basically the same thing. So I got to talk about that. And if I'm going to talk about an arcade game, I got to talk about Gotcha, because that was a previous Maze arcade game, <laughs> even though there's no real connection that I'm aware of between the two. And it just sort of becomes a rabbit hole. Uh, and at some point, it's just like, well, you know, these experimental AI Maze programs in the 50s, like they're probably not direct... Uh, influences but i should probably just bring them up because who else is ever going to in this sort of context i do think it's interesting trying to like chase something all the way down to the root i mean that becomes harder and harder the further along in the video game industry you get but when you're talking about like 
you know, mid to late seventies, early eighties, it's, it's doable, but you gotta go, you gotta mention a bunch of steps, but it's doable. And I think that that's a really interesting part of what you're doing here is just trying to, you know, find every rung on the ladder and, you know, walk it all the way back down. Yeah. And for me, it's like really important to do that with uh, the stuff from the seventies and sixties, because, you know, so much of that isn't emulated or it's emulated poorly or it really can't be emulated. And so it's just really easy to fall through the cracks or just get overlooked uh, by people today who aren't really digging in as deep. I actually have to uh, inquire with a few other historians every now and then. I'm like, okay, I think this is everything, like, you know, maze-wise. Did I miss anything? <laughs> They're like, oh, uh, well, you missed this program, I guess. Like, okay, cool. Well, And that, that brings up kind of an interesting discussion point that um, I have to admit I'm not intimately familiar with, um, which is the the lack of representation, of playable representation, I should specify, of um, a lot of our earliest video game history. I mean, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, a number of the earliest arcade games uh, were, uh, I guess, how would you put it? A number of the earliest arcade games would be TTL, like Transistor, Transistor Logic uh, type of games. So they don't have a ROM or a microprocessor for you to emulate. Uh, so if you are going to emulate them, you have to basically take the entire circuitry of the boards which can be multiple boards mm -hmm. and uh, put that whole thing into, you know, an FPGA or uh, your emulator or whatever, which up until fairly recently, uh, I don't think was really feasible. Uh, I know there's been some emulators in the past few years that have taken a crack at it. And I think uh, a lot of it's been roped into MAME now, but even then, you know, you have to find these boards that are still, in working shape if they do have like sprite data on a rom chip you have to dump the rom uh if you might need to get a schematic for it to be able to make sense of what you're looking at uh which you know fortunately a lot of these games had uh manuals for troubleshooting and repair but you have to get a hold of those and and that's just the arcade side you know you've also <laughs> got dedicated game systems for the home that are in the same boat. And then you've got computer systems from the 50s and 60s and 70s that may not be emulated or the code for these things might be lost. And it's just, it's a monstrosity. Yeah. And it's such a mess, especially for games that, you know, when people think of emulators, I think a lot of times they think of like, well, I just, I want to play the old games that I like. And um, a lot of these type of games, these like really early arcade games, they're not that fun by modern standards. So not only is it all this effort that, you know, has to go into preserving this history, but like, it seems to me like there's probably not as much motivation just because there's probably not a lot of average people <laughs> uh, loading these up and being like, yeah, I really want to play this super old arcade game where you move some dots around on a screen. Right. I mean, it's like you, in order to put in all of that, volunteer labor into reverse engineering and implementing this game. I mean, you have to have some level of personal interest. You know, I don't know any MAME devs who work on things that they just don't care about at all. And, you know, it's uh, not to be a downer, but it, it gets a little bit scary with some of this uh, stuff, because not only is the material itself kind of um, easily lost and volatile, but um, the potential interest from people uh, to implement it, I think, is aging out, frankly. Yeah. Um, gosh, uh, fairly recently, you know, there was a one example that comes to mind. Uh, you know, the historian Kate Willard was on a, or Willard, sorry. Uh, there was a, it's it's a was, pun, right? She, she's an artist. She will art. That's how I yeah, remember yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she was on a hunt for score, the arcade game from, I believe, Exidy. Uh, and that probably has one of the first uh, examples of a playable female character in a game. 
but uh, score was not very popular. And uh, there's only what two or three boards that are known to exist and none of them work. Oh. Uh, and she's been sort of uh, trying it off and on to see if anyone who owns one would be willing to like have it worked on. And while they're at it, maybe dump the ROM and get some good uh, photos taken of the circuit board so it can get emulated. But you know, that hasn't happened and you know, there's no footage of this game online. So we can't really say for sure if it is what she's looking for. Right. Yeah. It could just end up being a, a false lead in her. Um, I don't think we're, we're out of turn by saying that she's uh, researching playable female characters in games and, and trying to figure out the route. And yeah, it could, like you said, just not turn out to be a false lead for her, even after all that work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's especially yeah, a lot of this early arcade stuff is just, I, mean, I don't mean to turn this conversation, you know, in this <laughs> dark direction, but um, you know, I have, I have some, some, um, I have some history with this as well, which is um, I've worked on commercial products where uh, we wanted to include games um and just literally couldn't find them um the the biggest one being that when i worked on a collection with snk that in, that uh was meant to celebrate their history going back to their roots it was meant to be like the roots of snk before they uh made the neo geo we couldn't include the first snk game because we couldn't find it it's not in mame it's not a board that's available anywhere it just it just doesn't exist. You had people uh, like go to Japan too, right? To like oh yeah, yeah. Brandon Shepard worked on the <laughs> project. Yeah, like went to an archive of boards, and and uh, he didn't have the game either. He had he had he had, there there were maybe three in the series. It was called Mycom Kit. Yeah, I think he might have had Mycom Kit three, but you know he didn't have the first one or the second one for that matter. And and it's you know it's it's just weird to and. I think a lot of people just assume that all of this stuff is kind of covered, but it's just weird to think that like, we don't have the first SNK game. We don't have a lot of Konami's earliest games. Like a lot of the, the really early arcade stuff is just literally inaccessible. And, you know, it, and so much of it was influential. Like, you know, you talk about breakout and how breakout was this in big hit in Japan and how space invaders is basically just a, version of breakout and you know that's a whole line on its own and breakout itself was a, an iteration of a ramtech arcade game called clean sweep which you know no one's really heard of it's i think it's in mame it's one of those ttl games that uh i think someone managed to get working a few years back but uh you know it, it's readily overlooked and you know that's just sort of the nature of these 70s games yeah which is one thing i really like to do with these videos is you know i want to bring attention to them and sort of celebrate them even if you know they're not really playable or not something you necessarily want to play well and a lot of your research um is actually about the channel f which you mentioned earlier um which is uh, a system that that uh predates the vcs um did that kind of come from this lack of prehistory yeah um i think for the channel f and the, the rca studio 2 which also predated the bcs i uh part of that was because they predated the system itself yeah and uh you know they were doing a lot of the same things that atari did but they sort of screwed up in their own ways um, but if you look at their game libraries, you know, they're basically all the same sorts of things. You've got your, you know, math game, you've got some sort of, uh, like, you know, they'll call it space war, but it's usually some kind of target shooting game. You'll have your breakout clone, you'll have your, you know, tank game, etc. cetera. Uh, but you know, the VCS is the one that, you know, hit it off and it really, became something of interest to me like okay well why was that why did fairchild and rca muck it up so badly uh 
turns out they have very unique reasons in both cases, but, uh, you know, it, that's also just part of the context I'm really interested in. Cause you know, I remember a time when, uh, you know, the most you would get out of a history of those early game system was, oh, the games on this aren't very good. The system also <laughs> kind of sucks. There's nothing more to see here. Let's move along. We're going to wait until video games are good to start talking about that. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Well, I mean, even someone like me with those systems, it's like, I can't remember which one. I don't remember which one is the one where the controller is like a stick with a knob on top. You know, like, I don't, Fairchild, I don't know. Right? is that the Fairchild? You know, uh, like that's the Fairchild and the Bally Arcade. Okay. Oh, you know what? It was the Bally one that I played. <laughs> but point being that like these, these early systems kind of blur together, even for someone like me. Um, so yeah, it is uh, possibly a little unfair that, that, you know, we just don't really have their stories generally. What do you think is the, what do you think will help people appreciate these systems more? I mean, what, what's kind of the, uh, the way that you've identified as um, helping people understand why these early systems are actually kind of interesting root stories for other stuff. So one thing I have heard from feedback from people is that they really appreciate learning, uh, you know, what people thought about these games when they came out, uh, what the same sorts of game concepts looked like on other platforms at the same time that this, that these VCS ones dropped. Because uh, I think that helps them understand, you know, why the VCS version may have been really good or, you know, kind of crap. Um, and yeah, I've heard a lot of folks uh, really be pleased. I, I mean, I hate to hit on it yet again, but all the arcade stuff and the computer stuff before that, uh, I have got a lot of feedback from people who are like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that these games had such a long tail. Yeah, yeah, I think putting it in that context, I think, is um, is really is so important for helping people, frankly, just care about, <laughs> about these old games is that you know, you can kind of surround them with the other things. And then you're like, oh, okay, I see why that actually was an interesting game rather than looking at it through a, a modern lens or even like a, a different retro lens where you're looking at it through like, well, I like NES games, but this is, <laughs> this is a little too primitive. Yeah. Uh, Superman for the VCS really surprised me because I had never touched that game before doing this video series. And Oh, interesting. Yeah, and not only was it, like, pretty interesting, but, you know, it basically does the same things that Adventure does, just differently and with a different emphasis. Uh, and that really comes out when you go through and you read what people were talking about at the time. Like, Superman was much, much, much more influential in Adventure for people in, like, the early 80s. Uh I remember reading a couple of reviews that are like, yeah, adventure's fine, but Superman is where it's at. And, <laughs> well, you know, and that... that you're not a dot. Yeah. And like at some point it sort of flipped around and, you know, no one talks about Superman and everyone wants to talk about adventure because it reminds them of Zelda. I, I think of Superman as having, uh, I don't know if it fits everyone's definition of this, but I think of it as having one of the first cutscenes in a video game, the, uh, the, criminals blowing up the bridge yeah it absolutely does and you know it's one of the first games to have multiple objectives uh it's a game where you can't die like it's just a speed run basically yeah uh, it, it does a lot of really like interesting and cool stuff but it, it also has multicolored like characters well and you can like it, you, it's like an open world and you can go in and out of buildings like it's it's a really weirdly ambitious game that still kind of works for 1979, no less. Yeah. I want to play Superman now. <laughs> I still maintain it's the best Superman game that's ever been made. Wow, that's bold. Um, is it although, the... <laughs> I don't know what the competition is. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. <laughs> the one on iPhone was pretty good. <laughs> that's all I, there was this 2D one on iPhone that I thought was really good. And it was just a really simple arcade game. Um yeah, so you you were not the first to do um, 
a sort of cron gaming concept uh, as a series of videos. Uh, were you, were you inspired by others? Oh yes. Uh, so I remember uh, the f- time I sort of got in my head that I should do this uh, was right after I discovered Crontendo, which was about the same time that Jeremy Parrish started doing his Game Boy stuff. And, you know, I I knew Jeremy, or I know Jeremy, and he mentioned to me, like, oh, I mentioned to him, oh, maybe I should do this for Atari, just half-jokingly. And he's like, you absolutely should, because <laughs> somebody needs to, and I don't want to be that person. <laughs> yeah, they're taking all the good ones, and you, you're taking the uh, <laughs> the one that starts out a little rough. <laughs> I mean, so does the NES, let's yeah, be honest. There's a lot of a lot of baseball games that Crontendo has. <laughs> yeah, a lot of baseball games, a lot of mahjong. Yeah, <laughs> but so. uh, yeah. So uh, I was interested in the Atari, so that was an easy enough thing. But then I realized, oh, I don't have any idea what chronological order any of this came out in, and <laughs> it's turned out nobody else in 2013 did either. So, so that's actually a really good segue to the other thing I wanted to talk about. You sort of have like a Atari and well, not just Atari, it's for a lot of these old systems, you have like a release date project, uh, where you're trying to find release dates for uh, games on systems uh, on earlier systems, like the Odyssey two and the Astrocade and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about what makes these release dates so difficult to find? And and the two sources of all release dates? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can. So it's so, okay, back when I started this, uh, the closest information I could find for when any of this stuff came out were, you know, gaming magazines, because, you know, they would advertise in them and they're, they'd cover them. But that was only, you know, so they start in 82, you know, <laughs> like that they, they start they start five years into your project. Gaming yeah. Magazine. So that was really terrible. Um, yeah. So I just had a lot of question marks for like 78 and 79, et cetera. Uh, so a couple of things that did help uh, narrow that down a bit was when you, Frank, scanned and posted on the Internet Archive the Computer Entertainer Video Game Update newsletter, mm-hmm. which, you know, every month starting in you know late 82 on would, you know, l- call all the publishers of all these games and get updates on when they were publishing or when they were shipping. Well, and, and you know, you know why they did that, right? Because it was for retailers primarily. Well, because they were a retailer. So the the editors of um, Video Game Update ran a, a business before Video Game Update um, even started called uh, Video Takeout. And Video Takeout was a mail order game service. Like they were, um, they were one of the few places that you could buy uh, like Magic Card, for example. Um, so they were on top of that because they were the ones also ordering that stuff. Um, and so that's that unique combination of them sending out a monthly newsletter to players and also being retailers at the same time, just created, you know, our only record reliably of, of release dates from like 82 to 89. Yeah. And, you know, there were a couple other sources like arcade express that newsletter oh, is yeah. incredibly helpful, at least the ones that are online. There's a lot of gaps there, as it turns out. Um, the Actually, the Bally uh, Arcade uh, newsletters that fans published uh, were also incredibly good sources for information on that platform. Because, you know, they were so starved for releases that any time a new one dropped, it got <laughs> mentioned, you know, at least two or three times. It was the cover feature for the next three <laughs> issues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which actually, that one's a lot of fun, too, because they also, you know, covered all of the, like, fan games so and fan releases. So right up into 1985 and 86, there's release dates for Bally Arcade cartridges. <laughs> that people well, then you also have to rely a lot on um, newspaper advertising and stuff like that, it seems like. Yep. Uh, I did get uh, access to a couple different newspaper uh, uh, digital services, uh, archives, I guess. Uh, And I've spent a fair amount of time, you know, looking up a specific game and seeing what early ads I can find for it or, uh, you know, articles and reviews and that sort of thing, Uh, which has 
helped fill in a lot of the gaps because even though Computer Entertainer was thorough, they did not catch everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes, you know, they just were a little off. Um, I know if they couldn't get a better update for a game, it would just show up until apparently they found a copy or got copies. (laughs) (laughs) Distributor just suddenly had them. It's like, oh, thanks. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, a good example would be Qbert's Cubes for the uh, VCS and the ColecoVision, which, you know, according to Computer Entertainer, was supposed to ship, you know, like winter 85, very late 84. Uh, and then a couple of months ago, uh, I found an Ed Semrad column from the Milwaukee Journal that had uh, <laughs> he listed the specific uh, month they were coming out because it was that month. And he's like, oh yeah, these are showing up in Sears stores now. You should go pick them up because I don't think they're making any more. Man, that Ed's call. So Ed Semrad um, might be familiar to listeners as uh, eventually the editor of Electronic Gaming Monthly. And he kind of disappears out of video games in maybe like 96 or 97 when it, when Sendai sells the magazine to, to Ziff Davis. Um, but he had been writing columns for a newspaper go back to like 81 or something like that. Right. Uh, if I remember the earliest one is, uh, is it 82 or 83? It's one yeah, of those. Something, something like that, but you know, but it point was like being, a weekly column, <laughs> right. It was a weekly column and he's, you know, reporting on video games like way past when it makes sense. <laughs> you know, he's still talking about like, he's, He's report like he reported on the Nintendo AVS being a CES, you know, like the like it was that level of like still reporting on this stuff. And um, yeah, that column of his potentially gold for this kind of thing. And I remember when I was trying to substantiate the release of the NES, you know, I, I was referencing his column and, and he had a date that was like next Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> they're releasing this and um and it was a date that like made no sense with anything else i know and i still wonder about it you know i still wonder like is that was that the date all along <laughs> 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 like this october 18th date that is kind of hard to substantiate like is that actually wrong and it's ed's next saturday which is like the ninth <laughs> or something <laughs> but i actually i emailed ed because i found his address and i was like this is an odd question, but you know you're writing better than I would. By next Saturday, did you mean? Do you think you meant this one or this? One? <laughs> <laughs> next Saturday, did you? Well, you know it was a Saturday column, as it turns out. So yeah. <laughs> it might not have been next Saturday. I just pulled the date out of the air, but yeah, I mean, you really have to look at resources like this. And another one, like Video Kid, comes to mind. Like that's another column that's going on around this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kidvid. Kidvid, sorry, sorry. Uh, I think they both are columns. Um, and, uh, you know, there's periodicals that existed for, like, specific uh, industries, like Weekly Television Digest uh, and Merchandising. They cover a lot of early video game uh, news because, you know, it's part of the toy and electronics industry. So, yeah, and the- it's it's so hard to kind of track which industry video games are as years go on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause it's, it's almost like in the early eighties, they, they kind of were their own industry. Like they were just video games, but they all also kind of, you know, spilled into toys and stuff. But then after they go away, it kind of becomes more of like consumer electronics is, is, is where it goes. And then it's like, uh, maybe it's toys again. And then briefly it's the home video industry is what video <laughs> games are. And then they finally kind of settle around to being the video game industry again. And I would say like the nineties, like the early nineties. So, you know, finding these weird places where you might find coverage of the industry is, is very difficult. And in almost all cases, uh, not in a library. <laughs> yeah, I only found uh, merchandising at the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, which I really want to go back to once COVID is over because there's a bunch more issues I did not get to before the pandemic. Um, Weekly Television Digest, like I have 
like scans of those that a bunch of other historians have made mm-hmm. uh, that I just asked about and they sent over to me. So I've got like a collated list, but oh, uh, I, I know that one. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking about too. <laughs> uh, it was more than one, you know, <laughs> yep. there's a few of them. I, I send them a search term once in a while and they'll send me a zip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, that's what you get for your money with the video game history foundation, uh, discord. <laughs> yeah that's true actually you get access to the people who took pictures of stuff (laughs) um the the one that comes to mind for me that's that's really compelling is um this week in consumer electronics which is still going um goes back to maybe like 89 87 maybe something like that it's a weekly consumer electronics newsletter that covered video games during the nes era that's so, wild. <laughs> if you're listening and you you I don't know ran a Sears or something, and like, had a, had a subscription to Twice that you didn't throw away for some reason, get in touch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate uh, source for something like this. With with the kind of holy grail of this be something like an old Sears buyer who just has all of the the sheets they were sent from manufacturers yeah it depends uh, on the one of them yeah i was gonna say it i think it depends on the game right because sears isn't gonna purchase everything but um i think it's i don't know there's so many sources right like you think about it you've got the manufacturer um who sends to the distributor like who are these distributors, right? Like Kelsey, who are these distributors? You had a game store. Well, I mean, for <laughs> like Sears back in the day, I mean, I'm I'm just speculating based on you know how things work these days, which is probably very very different. But um, you know, at least in the game industry right now, if you've got a really big retailer, you deal with the company directly, right? Um, and there's not like a middleman. But for someone like me who owns a smaller store, you know, um. Nintendo or um, Ubisoft or whoever may sell a bunch of copies of a game to a distributor who then kind of, uh, you know, fans it out to all of the smaller retailers. But if, you know, if you're like an Amazon or a Best Buy or something, you're likely dealing with the company just straight up. So I would think that Sears probably dealt with those companies straight up, but I don't know. At the very least, I imagine Sears dealt with Atari and Mattel directly because right. they had their own branded versions of that stuff. Sure, maybe not the uh, the smaller releases and stuff. Although I don't know how much yeah. of that they uh, they would have really carried. Well, and yeah, especially box something sort of swinging the wind, <laughs> right? But then something for the Atari, like you're going for the full library. You're not going for the ones that Atari made specifically. So, like, this has to be nearly impossible for some of these publishers that like literally released one game and there's no information about them on the internet. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I feel like at that point, it's just going to be putting together any scraps that exist and just, uh, you know, putting it out there. I know. I think the one that springs to mind, first of all, is a uh, air raid. Yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> there's only a handful of copies of it. They seem to only have been sold in like, southern california and i think some years ago someone tracked it down to a specific like family-owned store and they were gonna sell their own atari games and they manufactured a handful of these before they decided not to well and like the the i remember the boxed copy of air raid was found was purchased from a tuesday morning store and tuesday morning is kind of like a fancier big lots and that they buy dead stock so like mm-hmm. it might not have even technically been a retail game yeah or uh extraterrestrials up in uh, ontario which came out in early 84 and they basically had to sell it door to door because retailers didn't want to stock a new atari game and there's, i mean there's so many of these things that were like catalog order only too you know um where it you know they were maybe never on a shelf anywhere not even at like a local mom and pop they might have just been a guy in his garage yeah birthday uh, mania comes to mind for me with that yeah i'm really surprised uh that recently someone was able to track down the guy who made birthday mania and (laughs) based on what he told them where they were able to track down the newspaper ad he ran for the game oh my god yeah 
And then they rebuilt the game using the source code listing that was at like the copyright office. Right. Yeah, that that's my favorite. That's like one of my favorite things to ever happen is rebuilding a game from the copyright submission source code because it probably was small enough to be printed and sent there. It's probably a 2K game. So, yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's sort of what happens with uh, a lot of early film preservation now, I guess. is uh, Oh, yeah. The Library of Congress has a lot of these on like a paper film and they just are able to run through it through and digitize it. And look, it's a movie from 1909. Right. Yeah. And the paper film was submitted just to protect the film's copyright. You know, exactly. like they weren't running paper film in theaters or whatever. Like the paper was just the cheap print. Like it would be like, you know, re- recording your YouTube video on a VCR or something. You know, like it's just the cheap thing they can do. Um, yeah, and then the labels fell off of these cans, so the you know the copyright office never got rid of them once the copyrights <laughs> ran out. Right. So, and that's why these things survive. And it's just, I love that the entirety of Birthday Mania was just in the copyright and could be retrieved and rebuilt. And it's just, I've talked for years about how one of my not so secret goals is to turn the library of Congress into a source code repository. And it's like, that's, that's kind of a vision of the future is his birthday mania. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I know what a month or so ago, someone rebuilt the source code or from the printed source code of the RCA studio Four basic program, which the studio Four is a game system that never existed. It was, a prototype and then it just got dropped but they wrote basic for the thing and rca for whatever reason printed it up in a manual that as it turned out was at the hagley library in delaware and i was able to go there and take pictures of the whole thing and someone who you know marcel van tongeren i think is his name how you pronounce his name but he does the mo2 emulator and he rebuilt basic for the studio for using that code listing (laughs) so now you can download the newest version of his emulator and program your own basic programs for a dead system i guess (laughs) (laughs) that stuff is so fun and so cool i want to go back to the atari archive project um were there any titles that were just particularly challenging to do uh, a whole episode about? Uh, so um, basic math comes to mind, which is why it's such a short video. Because, you know, the author for that has never talked to anyone. He has a super common name, so I couldn't track him down. Uh, there's not a whole lot of information about it. So it's just like, well, it's a math game. It's a lot like these other math games. Guess we're good here. Uh, there's one I'm working on right now that's kind of a pain for different reasons and that is bridge which is a video game rendition of the card game bridge right which i don't know how to play because i'm not 50 (laughs) and uh and the instruction manual for it doesn't tell you how to play it because the author just assumed you already knew how to play bridge right why would you buy this game (laughs) right so it makes the humor for bridge on the atari is surely a bridge player yeah like it makes sense but uh <laughs> it's it's a pain in the ass so i'm not sure how that's gonna come together exactly maybe i'll have a breakthrough and i'll finally figure out what i'm doing in there uh, you gotta learn bridge dude yeah i mean i had to learn uh, a couple of games by this point uh, to actually do this series like uh i had to learn bulls and cows which i'm still terrible at (laughs) Uh, um backgammon i had no idea how to play backgammon before i did this video for backgammon well at least you don't have to learn japanese you know like you're not doing the famicom uh the you know small miracles although japanese would probably be a lot more useful in your life than than baccarat Well, you know, uh, I did have to cover, you know, Space Invaders. So that involved a lot of talking about the Japanese game Space Invaders. Sure. So, you know, if I could have read Japanese a little bit better, that probably would have gone slightly more smoothly. 
So I want to circle back to the uh, release date thing a little bit and just talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about how release dates are hard to find, but um, we haven't really talked about the fact that sometimes there really weren't release dates back then. I mean, you know, nowadays everything is kind of timed and it's like, okay, this is going to come out simultaneously at every retailer on the 13th or whatever. And uh, can you talk a little bit about how different that was back then and you know what the sort of release what the release timeline was like <laughs> yeah i definitely can so uh so basically at the time uh the release date quote unquote is when products started shipping out of the warehouses to stores that doesn't mean that they all started being sold at the same time in all of these stores um since that would depend entirely on the logistics of you know, moving all of these cartridges around the country. So I can find ads for, you know, Space Invaders, for example, that ran in March 1980. And some of the coverage uh, talking to Atari executives, they'll mention that this game came out in March 1980. But even up into June and July, you can find ads that are like, <laughs> just arrived, Space Invaders. <laughs> It's and you know, I know it came out months prior, but for the people in you know whatever the heck town, uh, it, it hadn't. It had just shown up. It's kind of like you know when I was a kid, uh, we waited months to get Super Mario Brothers three because it uh, ostensibly shipped in February, but we didn't see it until like June. Yeah, that's um. Can you imagine how much people would lose their minds if it operated like that today? <laughs> like everyone in LA is going to get uh going to get the new Animal Crossing or whatever on this release date and uh people in the Midwest you guys can get it 2 months from now. You'd have people moving closer <laughs> to distribution centers <laughs> to get the games earlier. Like people would actually pick up and move if the gamer culture was like it is now, but that was the case. I, I think you're right. So why do you think release dates are important for historians to know, even when they're kind of uh, kind of fluid and fuzzy like this? I think it's important to know when these games came out. So uh, on one hand, you can sort of see how the market developed and, you know, how these games may have influenced each other or not. Um, I think a good example there is uh, Basketball for the VCS came out like a couple of months after Basketball came out for the Odyssey 2. And they're very different games. The Odyssey 2 Basketball is kind of a mess. Um, but this gives you an opportunity to look at these two and say, oh, well, this is how they did this differently. And, you know, these were, you can sort of see the decision process behind each of these because neither of them had anything to go on before that point. Uh, and on the flip side, uh, you can look at when Space Invaders came out for the VCS. It was a huge hit based on a huge hit for the arcade. And you know, about a year or so later, you start seeing all of these other game systems publishing their own versions of Space Invaders. Uh, and you can probably infer from that that, oh, they must have saw how much this was selling on the Atari system and thought, well, we got to get in on that somehow. Which then kind of tells you what the average development time might have been for these games. Yeah, in a lot of these cases, from the people I've talked to, yeah, the average development time was like six months, seven months, and then you had uh, manufacturing, which was another, you know, two or three. So, and you can sort of see that bear out <laughs> with uh, how these games came out. Can you imagine... Working on, I don't even remember the name, is it Space Zapper or what? Like the Intellivision Space Invaders. Can you imagine that being your full time job for like six months? <laughs> Just like slowly making the simple Space Invaders game work. And, you know, not only making it work, but trying to find your own way to spin it so yeah. you know, it's not a complete ripoff and there's actually value to playing it. Yeah, it's like their little antennas wiggle. That actually was the biggest surprise to me doing that video was all the different like 
tweaks to Space Invaders all these companies were doing to make it their own. Like Mattel's version, they fired different kinds of projectiles <laughs> at you. And, you know, the Odyssey 2 one, there's, there's a whole lot going on with that game. It's kind of weird. Well, that was even happening in like the game centers and or whatever they were called, the invader centers in, in Japan. Invader houses. Invader houses. Yeah. Um, like I, I remember just in my research that, um, so SNK was one of the early official distributors of uh, Space Invaders. Uh, they made SNK cabinets, but, you know, on the level partnership with Taito and, um, they added just a little jingle that happens when you die, you know, and, and that, and that became known in player circles as melody invaders because it plays a melody. <laughs> oh, that game had such a fascinating distribution and just crash and burn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's one of the stories that could be a documentary, you know, like Tetris. I always thought is the perfect game documentary there. I mean, they're, they're not documentary. Sorry. Uh, uh like biopic right like mm-hmm. like like uh and and i always thought tetris would be the perfect one and they're doing that but i kind of think the invader boom could be another really good movie i was gonna say i have a whole 30 minute documentary on it on my youtube folks can check out <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know with the release dates too uh one thing i thought was really interesting is that it gives you a sense of how alive platforms and the market as a whole were at different points in time. And I'm thinking specifically like 84, 85, 86, like, you know, if you go by, you know, the popular culture view of it, you know, there was just nothing, nothing was coming out in that three year stint until Mario came and saved the day. But you look at it, like Coleco was still really trying to get the Coleco vision to like keep making them money. And, you know, Atari did too. And a few of the third parties, like there was, there was a recognition that there was interest in these games and in new games. Uh, There was just a lot of problems with retailers trying to clear out the glut of stock that they had to move for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking right now at your release list and, you know, it's kind of blowing my mind that Atari put out Asterix in March of 1985 for the BTS. It's like, what do you, first of all, none of us know who Asterix is here in the States. <laughs> Asterix and Obelix are just such like a pain for me. Cause you know, computer entertainer has the Asterix listed as shipping out in like October 83, which right. doesn't make any sense to me because it's based on Taz and was developed like pretty much at the same time as Taz, but Taz didn't come out until 84. Uh, and then the only advertising I could find for Asterix beyond that is from 85. So like, what, what, what's going on here, Atari? Where did these NTSC copies of Asterix come from? <laughs> well, and also just looking at these release dates, um, just kind of scrolling through this entire list, you can see just like when it's all together like this, you can really see the intensity with which it ramps up. I mean, you know, you have just a couple of releases in 77 and a couple in 78 and 79. And then, you know, once you get to 81, 82, it's just, <laughs> it's an absolute explosion of release dates. And I'm, you know, I'm sure this is not, this probably isn't like, I mean, there's no such thing as a complete Atari list, right? So, because there's just, so many freaking releases that are uh, maybe not normal retail, but I just think it's really, in- the, the visual is really interesting that you can see how quick it ramps up after, you know, 1980. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very fun that you can see uh, the boom on the market happening and then the bust like, yeah. in terms of just how <laughs> the games come out. It's like, okay, so around, you know, September 1982 up until about October 1983, it's just a hot mess of things jostling for shelf space. And then it's just, then it's just flat lines. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through this and it's just kind of blowing my mind how many, I mean, it's not a lot, but just that there was support for just about every console in 1985. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
to some degree or another. I mean, Thunder Castle, I think of as a classic in television game that came out October 85. That came out the same time that NES did. <laughs> yeah, and at that point, it was a mail order game because INTV, which was selling the Intellivision at the time, hadn't gotten uh, its foot back into the door of retailers. Wow. At least major retailers. I'm sure, you know, the folks who did video game update were able to get copies. But So have you done the math on how long this is going to take, this project, <laughs> the Atari Archive? Um, I haven't because that would just horrify me. <laughs> I, ha- I do recognize that uh, as we get into the boom years, I'm probably going to have to like cover a few games per video just so i don't lose my mind because yeah i mean data age throws out like five games at once am i really going to go through all five data age games <laughs> one by one without a whole lot to talk about differently between them like yeah you can not. just have a data age episode right yeah i can just go over all of them you know i i almost ran into that a little bit with the first four activision games because like okay i got to talk about activision's founding and history with this first game and uh the rest of these i guess are just um i guess we're just talking about dragster <laughs> so you know figuring it out the format but i'm gonna guess it's gonna be a long-term project i should probably put these up on an internet archive at some point yeah you should and that's also part of the reason why I started doing the website, not just as a place to throw all of this release date information, but I figured, you know, I can write up articles based on, you know, the research I've done in these scripts and uh, I can add in more details that I've found out since I did these videos because it's a lot easier to update an article than it is to <laughs> re-upload a video and all that jazz. So are your articles kind of like, I mean, are they meant to be uh companion pieces to the videos or are they more like you know going can you just read the article and get all the research or uh should you take a look at both if you're interested uh you can just read the article really um they're one they're sort of a companion but really it's just i'm a writer and i like having this stuff down somewhere in a place that's not uh, beholden to google's whims so you're kind of filling this niche uh in game history this this thing that no one else is doing um is there anything you'd like to see someone else uh take the reins on so one thing i'd love to see uh more of people working on uh is sort of the user side of these early games and i guess you know games into the 80s and 90s uh you know how were people playing these games? What did people think about these games? You know, um, a couple examples that spring to mind that I've ran into over the years. Uh, back in 2015, I was working at a newspaper, and in the course of my you know release date research, I came across this local group called the Activision Addicts that uh, they did charity. Uh, programs for a local children's hospital like they got all these game publishers to donate uh, cartridges and game consoles and like they brought them on down they had a whole event for the kids and they did this a few years uh, and one of the guys was still in the area so I sat him down and I talked with him about this whole thing and like how it came about and that was really cool and that's sort of an aspect of this kind of history you don't see as much of or I'm thinking of uh, Kat Despira's article a couple years ago, looking at how people played Pac-Man machines and how you with, can with tell the hand on the side, right? The, yeah, like the yeah. worn-off paint. And now every time I see a Pac-Man machine, I look for that uh, worn-off paint. I'm like, oh, well, this is a machine that people really loved. Yeah, that's such a hard thing to research. Like you almost have to either have been there or just conduct a blanket of oral history you know like did you play this game reach out to me and it's it's something that you know we the the best way that we provide that at the foundation is just trying to make sure that if a review exists that we have it um because that at least gives you critical consensus which if you add them all up might sort of approach what a player consensus might be right um but 
you know, other than that, it, it's really tricky. Yeah, and you could kind of get it um, from some local newspaper coverage. I know those tend to talk to you know, the retailers and the arcade operators and sometimes kids sometimes sometimes it'll just be like here's what my kid and his friend said (laughs) yeah so you know that's a resource uh that's pretty interesting um for scenes that have been around a long time like uh like fighting game scenes for a given area like there's probably people there who know people who were there previously and such and such all the way back into the 90s so like you can get a good history of people over the long run and i know some of those folks can tell you all about uh, what arcades were like in the 80s and 90s and what games were popular etc and I, I mean, another difficult thing just about uh getting oral histories from uh from people who were there and who kind of were the ones playing and experiencing this stuff is that no matter what it's going to skew in the direction of the people who uh, these games actually had an impact on. So you're going to get sort of a biased answer. Like if someone clearly remembers their time playing X game and has like a ton of memories of it and can speak to it, they're probably more than your average fan <laughs> of that yeah. thing, right? I mean, especially if you're looking 30 plus years ago, right? I There were probably a ton of games that I played at arcades or like the McDonald's play area or whatever that... I don't really have any memory of. So whatever, uh, whatever you're able to get out of those people is going to, it's going to skew pretty heavily in the direction of people who were really affected or were, you know, super fans of that one game. Yeah. And, you know, talking to old distributors or, uh, you know, retailers or, you know, arcade operators, those people tend to have their own perspectives too. find people to tell you, Oh yeah, that this, this is what did really well for us at that point. And, you know, Right. Here's sort of a general memory of what I re- recall of being interested. Like I remember talking to a retailer, I think in Indiana, who was one of the last people still selling Astrocade stuff in the area. Uh, so like I got to email back and forth with him a little bit about, uh, okay, well, what do you remember about this? Uh, what was popular? He was able to tell me some interesting stuff that, We'll hopefully make it into a video at some point. But yeah, it's it's difficult. Maybe in 40 years, someone will ask you what was popular at uh, your store. Because <laughs> the, the... writing that down, I, guess I, I can generate reports. I can be like, well, this is what sold really well. Yeah, future historians need that information. Well, you have some of the only data on um, what people are seeking in terms of retro imports at this time. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's true. Um, But I mean, even for someone like me, the reports I can generate are are pretty good data, but they don't take into consideration. Like, I mean, I probably have a ton of customers who would like a copy of Mother 3 on the Game Boy Advance, but I don't have an infinite supply of Mother 3 on the Japanese Game Boy Advance. So my sales data is probably only going to show that a couple have sold over the last year. But if I had an infinite supply, maybe it would have been like a hundred, you know? Right. (laughs) So hard data isn't always good. Yeah, I'm really impressed by the people who dig in through, you know, Usenet and uh, forum posts from the 90s or whatever. Yeah. You know, t- that are trying to get impressions on new games and game sales because that seems like a yeah. different kind of nightmare than the one I've made for myself. But it's a, it's a much more subjective nightmare, I feel like. I mean, just. Yeah. It's, it's harder to, to code all of those like feelings and um, and attitudes and say like, okay, well, if I sum these all up, is this is this an accurate representation of of what people were thinking or, or saying about this game? Whereas, you know, I get to talk about what David All and Bill Kunkel and you know, <laughs> Cohen thought about these games. <laughs> and I'm sure they... they... Their writing was much more thoughtful than than a Usenet <laughs> user in the late nineties as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kevin, uh, 
thank you so much for joining us on the video game history hour. Is there uh, anything last minute you want to bring up that we didn't cover or anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I will plug, uh, you know, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Atari archive. Uh, you can go to the website, atariarchive.org. There's no S in there. That's a different website. I discovered after I made this one. <laughs> Uh, and my Twitter is Uprasaurus, which very old high school in joke. <laughs> we all been there. Uh, yeah. And I do have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Atari archive. So if you like what I'm doing, you can, you know, feel free to pay me for it. Uh, you'll get videos a week in advance. Right on. Um, and if you're interested in Kevin's chickens, uh, <laughs> the the video game history foundation discord has a as an exclusive uh channel just for pictures of kevin's chickens so uh check that out uh on our uh website and our patreon um well happy new year to everyone uh listening and and uh also to uh those present here and uh we hope to uh hear you hear from you all again uh, next year thank you for having me Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter, at GameHistoryHour, or email us at podcast at GameHistory.org. Did you know the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax-deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at GameHistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.